I've been here over the weekend and uh, been privileged to participate in the missions conference on Friday and again yesterday and now again here this morning and uh, appreciate the invitation to come and be part of this. Some of you are wondering why I talk so properly. Uh, this is not an accent, this is called English because that's where I'm from. I've been in Toronto for the last 17 years, pastoring the People's Church, although I've stepped down from that now, and they call me Minister at Large, which has nothing to do with how much food I eat. Uh, that's, uh, I roam around. In fact, I'll be back in England in three days' time, and we'll be there for a few days, and then next week I'm in Holland for a conference, and then in Austria, then back in England, then in Sweden, then back in England, and then in Israel. And I come home. So we keep on the run, uh, keeps us out of mischief. And uh, I do appreciate any church that has a vision for the world, global involvement, and therefore it was a delight to be invited to be here. The theme that was given to this conference was grace through us into the world. And as I said on the last couple of days, I like to personalize that. Grace is a bit impersonal. We're not altogether sure what it is. But it's Christ through us to the world. And the theme you'll find to the book of Acts when Paul came back from missionary journeys, on four occasions he gave a report as to what he'd been up to, on each occasion, he said something similar. They reported all that God had done through them. They report everything God had done through them. These are three different statements I'm quoting. They reported what God had done among the Gentiles through them. After his third journey, they reported what God had done among, among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul didn't waste time telling people what he had done for God. Because that would be a waste of time but what God had done through him. And no wonder he says in Romans 15, verse 18, I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God, what I've said and done. So this is a theme through the post-Pentecost New Testament that is God through us, God through us, God through us. And as the theme of this conference is through us, to the world, not just to our own natural self-interest, but through us to a wider world. And it's been so good that Tom and Lynn Jackson were uh, commissioned today to represent you and work under his auspices in the Solomon Islands. The undergirding theme of missions here in this church is taken from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so I want to read uh, that verse to you. I'm going to read from verse uh, 7, verse 6 rather, down to verse 9. Acts chapter 1. This is after the resurrection of Jesus and just before his ascension. It says, so when they met together, they asked him, that's his disciples, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, 
It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, it's none of your business. Don't try to work it out. It's not your business. That's the Father's business. I mean, there are all kinds of people trying to work out when this is going to happen. And uh, don't take them seriously because uh, it's not ours to know. But he said, this is what is for you to know, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Which means these were the very last words Jesus ever uttered on earth as a man in his human body before he was taken up to heaven. And I'm sure these words were premeditated. I'm sure these words were purposeful. I'm sure he didn't just say them and suddenly he was whipped away and ascended and, uh, and anticipatedly for him. I'm sure these were the words he left to be ringing in the ears of his people until the day when in verse 11 it says, in the same way you've seen him go, he's going to come back. But until then, until then, this is what you need to know. You receive power, and this power will enable you to be a witness, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's that aspect, Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that is the, uh, as I said, the undergirding theme of missions here at uh, Hoffman Town. And if you haven't got hold of one of these little cards, which uh, gives a list of the Jerusalem and Judea areas of ministry, the local, then extending out a little wider, and the Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth, then get one of these cards. It gives you the names of places uh, that uh, you're involved in already as a fellowship and as a church. And the prayer stations we had referred to were all built around this verse uh, and, and cover uh, well, that covers the comprehensive nature, really, of the church's mission. Now, Jesus talked about three things in these verses that I will talk to you about. He talked about power. First of all, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But that begs the question, what kind of power is he talking about? And the word that is used here in the Greek from which our English translation is taken is a word that is often used of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It is the word dunamis, the Greek word dunamis. And we recognize English words that are related to that and come from that, words like dynamite, dynamic, dynamism. We recognize those words to talk about power in the sense of sheer energy and sheer force. Now he says you're going to receive dynamism, dynamic power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And if anybody needed power, it was this bunch of 11 apostles. One of them had already committed suicide, Judas. There are 11 of them left because this conversation took place on a Thursday. And it was 40 days after his resurrection, but six weeks Previously, on another Thursday night, the disciples had met with Jesus the night before his uh, crucifixion. They had celebrated the Passover with him. At the end of the Passover, he'd taken some bread left from the table and 
broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body that is given for you. Take and eat it. Then he took some wine left after the meal and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take it and drink it, each of you. And then having talked about his death in that way, he then said to them, Matthew 26 and verse 31, he then said to them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Tonight, you're all going to quit. And the disciples were indignant. Peter said in verse 33, this is Matthew 26, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In other words, Jesus I understand why you might be saying this. I mean, uh, Andrew, you know, he's always been a bit weak, really. Uh, John, he's just sentimental, but when the pressure's on, I can understand him going, Philip, well, he's a bit simple anyway, so he's going to go. Thaddeus, no one's ever heard of him. He's a disciple who'll cause quiz teams to lose points because he can't remember the 12th disciple. He's going to go. But Jesus, you forgot about me. Even if all these fall away, I never will. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. In other words, says Peter, Jesus, I'm sorry to say this, but you misunderstand me and you underestimate me. If all these fall away, I never will. If I have to die with you, I will. If they have to put four crosses on that hill and put me on the fourth, don't worry, I'll be there. And it says all the other disciples said the same. Well, then they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was arrested. You'll know the story. And he was taken during the night before the Sanhedrin Council. Peter, it says, followed at a distance. And a servant girl came up to him and said, uh, I think I've seen you before. Aren't you one of his disciples? One of whose disciples? That man they just arrested. Who they just arrested? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of where? Nazareth. No, I don't know him. I thought I saw you with him. No, no, it must be somebody who looked like me. Okay, sorry. Phew, got away with that. Then somebody else came up and said, you've got a Galilean accent. Aren't you one of his disciples? Huh, funny you should say that. Somebody else just asked me that. No, I don't know him. And then somebody else came by and said to him, uh, it was several of them now, came and said, uh, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And I can't tell you what Peter says because the scripture censors what he says because it says he cursed and he swore and he denied any knowledge of Christ. In other words, I don't blankety, blankety, blankety know the blankety man. <laughs> and the scripture censors it. And suddenly... Piercing the sunrise, 
he heard and Peter it says wept bitterly think Peter needed some power it says all the other disciples forsook him and fled they were no better John seems to have been the last one to leave, but he did leave, and Jesus died alone. When he cried out into my, your hands, I commend my spirit, there was no disciple anywhere close. And you'll know if you read carefully the gospel record, only four people attended the funeral of Jesus, and not one of them was one of his disciples. Joseph Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, these were the only four who attended his funeral. No disciple did. Do you know why? Because it tells us why. Because they were hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. If anybody needed power, it was this group of men. And Jesus says to this weak, dispirited, Failing group of men, you will receive power, dunamis, dynamic power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It's interesting to compare this word dunamis with another word Jesus used for power just before his ascension as well. Because in Matthew 28, in verse 18, I'll quote the King James here. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when he says all power is given to me, he uses a different word. He doesn't use the word dunamis. He uses the word exousia, which means power in the sense of authority. All authority in heaven has been given to me. You see, power in the sense of authority is the power that a cop has to go into the middle of the road, a policeman has to go into the middle of the road, hold up his hand, and all the traffic will stop. If I try to do that, I will get run over. What gives him his power is his uniform that designates his authority. It has nothing to do with his personal energy, nothing to do with his personal dynamism. He might go home and be a wimp at home, henpecked by his wife, but put on his uniform, whoo, stop the traffic. That's exusia, that's power in the sense of authority. Now, Jesus used both these words for power just before his ascension. He used the word exousia, authority, about himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. I have the perfect, total right to tell you what to do. All authority has been given to me. But that will only frustrate us unless we know the other power that he says is for his disciples. Exousia is about himself. But dunamis, dynamic power, is about his disciples. You will receive power power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, authority without dynamic is actually pathetic. 
On the other hand, dynamism without authority is dangerous. You can have stacks of dynamism. Look at terrorist organizations. No authority can blow people into smithereens. They've got stacks of dynamism. They have no authority behind what they're doing. What is needed, of course, is the authority for authority and dynamism to come together. The authority to declare what should be and the dynamism to make it happen. I don't travel on buses very much, but I was on a bus in England on one occasion. Actually, it was from Scotland down to England. It was an overnight bus journey. It's difficult to go anywhere overnight in England. It's not big enough, but we managed to do it that night. And uh, from Glasgow down to London, about six, seven hours or something. That's almost the length of Britain. And uh, when we set off from Glasgow, sitting on this bus, there was uh, a man sitting by himself in a seat on this bus who became evident was a little bit the worse for drink. And uh, he sort of played with the back of the head to the two people in front of him, and they tried to stop him, and they'd sit back, and they'd do it again. And so they went and sat somewhere else. Then he slid his hand through the seat and played with the knees of the people behind him. So they went and sat somewhere else. Then decided to sing, which he couldn't do. And uh, people on the bus were getting really irritated with this man because, you know, it was overnight. We wanted to try and get a bit of sleep of some kind. And so suddenly went up to the bus driver and said, uh, uh, this man's drunk, we, we can't carry on with this kind of behavior. So the driver pulled up into the side of the road, uh, got out of his seat, came up the aisle and said to this man, you are disturbing the peace on this bus, you're drunk, I'm gonna ask you to get off the bus you can go back to Glasgow on another bus, get yourself sober, and you can travel tomorrow. And when he talked to the man, just looked out to the window and ignored him, and the, police, and the driver said, I'm telling you, because he pulled off by where there was a bus stop, he said, I'm telling you, get off this bus and travel when you're sober. The man just looked out to the window and totally ignored him. The driver put his hand on the man's shoulder and said, get off my bus, and he just ignored him, looked out to the window. The rest of us were all sitting there wondering what's going to happen next. None of us tried to help or anything. <laughs> and eventually, he, the driver went back to his seat, started the engine, went back onto the freeway, and this man began to sing even louder. And we thought, he'd, or he thought he'd won a great victory. A little while later, we pulled off the freeway again, went into a little town, pulled up outside the building. From my seat in the in, in the, air, in the I could see two words over the uh, building, police station. Driver got out, went inside, came back out with two burly-looking Scottish policemen. They came onto the bus and they said, which is he? He said, this man over here. So one of the cops went up and said, all right, get off the bus. Man just looked out to the window and ignored him. You're drunk. I'm asking you to get off the bus and you can travel when you're sober. Man just looked out of the window and ignored him. Driver put his hand onto the shoulder of the man. His fingers disappeared into his shoulder. He yanked him to his feet, spun him around. The other policeman got the other side and the last resource of going into the police station like this. The driver had all the authority to tell that man what to do, but he had no dynamism to make it happen. It was pathetic. 
The policeman had the authority to tell him what to do, and they had the dynamism to make it happen. Now said Jesus, I have the authority to tell you exactly what to do. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's my instruction. And I have all the authority in heaven and all the authority on earth to tell you what to do. But they'd probably say, well, we can't do it. And they'd be absolutely right. We're weak. They're absolutely right. We have a history of pathetic failure. They were absolutely right. And so along with his authority, power in the sense of authority, you will receive dynamism, dynamic power. And you will be my witnesses when you know that enabling in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's why I never detach the Lordship of Christ over us from the dynamism of the Holy Spirit within us. We must know his Lordship over our lives and submit ourselves to him as our Lord. We must know the enabling, empowering of the Spirit within us. Otherwise, what he asks of us will be impossible to us. So that's the first thing he talked to these disciples about. He talked about power. Second thing he talked about was purpose. Why is he giving them power? Is it so they can parade around as powerful men? No, he said, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. That's the purpose. Notice, he doesn't say you will do witnessing on a Friday night with a team of other people. That's legitimate, of course, but that's not what he's saying. You will be witnesses. You see, if the Holy Spirit lives within us, we don't have a choice anymore. We are a witness. Our life does speak about Christ. It either tells people that Christ is worth knowing or our life tells people Christ is not worth knowing. Because there's nothing about us that in any way is inexplicable compared to them. Nothing about our lives that says you're different. The question is not are you a witness. If you are a Christian this morning, the question is are you a good witness or a poor witness? Are you a true witness or a false witness? That's the issue. Before I got married, which is now 38 years ago, more than that, my wife isn't here, but uh, when I got married 38 years ago, up until our wedding day, I had a choice. And the choice was, am I going to be a husband or not? And when I stood in front of the congregation of folks who gathered for our wedding, and I was asked the question, will you take this woman to be your lawfully, get that right, lawfully wedded wife? Is that what you say here? That was the language we used anyway. He then asked me to reply. And I said, I will, because I know what's good for me. <laughs> then he asked her the same questions, and she said, I will. <laughs> he then said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. 
And from that moment on, I no longer had the choice, am I going to be a husband or not? I had a different choice. Am I going to be a good husband or a bad husband? And I'm a bad one because I run away so much. <laughs> the moment Jesus Christ comes to live within you, you are a witness. You don't have to decide, am I going to be a witness? The issue is, are you a good witness or a bad witness, a true witness or a false witness? Does your life tell people? The way you go about your business, the way you talk to your neighbors, the way you talk about your neighbors when they're not listening, which is probably more telling. The way you go about in the workplace, the way you handle money, the way you handle people. Does it tell people Jesus Christ is worth knowing or does it tell people you're absolutely no different to anybody else? And so he's not worth knowing. Religion is your hobby. Golf is mine. Nothing different about you than there is about me, people might say. But the issue is the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. You'll be a witness. That's his purpose. He is there because the Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. And that is what he is doing. That is what being a witness is. It's a witness to Jesus Christ. And so if the first thing he talked about was power, the second thing was about purpose, and then the third thing he talked about was procedure, because he outlined where they would be witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you know that is ever-expanding circles. Jerusalem was the city where they were. Judea was the province in which Jerusalem was located. Samaria was another nation and an antagonistic nation. The Jews and Samaritans were antagonistic towards each other. And then outside of that, to the ends of the earth, no limits. It's a concern for the whole world. Let me just follow this expanding circle with you for a moment. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was not home to these disciples. They were from Galilee. That was their home. But it's where they were at the time. Not only that, having been there for the last seven weeks, it seems, you work out when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Remember, he came in on the Palm Sunday, as we call it, Sunday before his crucifixion. Arrived a couple of days before, stayed in Bethany, and then they'd come in, which is not far away, into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, the disciples had been there about seven weeks, probably. And uh, Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem a lot during his ministry. He made three visits, as far as we know, to Jerusalem, and none of them for very long. Most of his ministry was up in the north, in Galilee. And so Jerusalem wasn't their home, but it's where they were... And it was the scene of their most awful failure. We just talked about the fact that Peter denied Jesus three times. Not only that, all the others had fled and hid. One of their number, Judas, had committed suicide. And if we're honest about this group of disciples, they were a messed up group of failures. You can be sure that the gossip in the Market Square in Jerusalem, they talked about, you know that one? We all welcomed him when he came in on Sunday, and we said, oh, Hosanna. You know, they crucified him on Friday. Yeah, I know. Well, why didn't his disciples stop him? Well, they weren't anywhere to be seen. And you can be sure the gossip was, they were a pathetic group of men. None of them stayed around when it got tough. 
Now in this area of their failure, Jesus said, be a witness here. Because your most powerful witness will be where people know your biggest failure. And they all know about your failure here in Jerusalem. One of the things God has to teach us, we can learn it in a theory, but we don't learn it until we learn an experience. As Paul says in Romans 7, in me that's in my flesh that dwells no good thing. Now, we might say, well, we know that verse, but a lot of us don't actually believe that. As far as my ability to live as I'm designed to live, there's no good thing, I cannot do it. God has to bring all of us to that point. Some of the best moments in our lives when we shed the bitterest tears because of our sense of failure. And I've learned in my pastoral work never to sympathize with people who are facing up to their failure and say, oh, it's not so bad really. No, say, it is bad. I'm glad you're seeing it. I'm glad you're weeping. This is the gateway to discovering something else, not about how nice you might be or how good you really are. This is the gateway to discovering in your weakness, somebody else is strong. And it's the avenue in which the Lord Jesus Christ can begin to work in a new way within you. That's why as long as we think of the Christian life in terms of mastering techniques for Christian living or get a proper training for Christian living, but without a deep work of the Spirit of God in our heart that is rooted in our own sense of failure, our own sense of inability, for that me, said Jesus, you can do nothing. You can run a church, but you'll do nothing. And these disciples had faced that abruptly in the previous Days that they'd been in Jerusalem. It would have been a lot nicer for them if Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in the ends of the earth where nobody knows you. You got a blank sheet of paper and you can stand up and they don't know if you're good, bad or indifferent and you preach and, you know, we think it'd be much nicer if people didn't know me. <laughs> no, said Jesus, you'd be much less authentic when people don't know you. <laughs> but here you begin in your Jerusalem. And I can imagine, this is only my imagination, I can imagine Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, do you remember that girl who asked you if you were his disciple? And Peter might say, yes. And you denied it. Yes. Peter, would you go and find that girl? She lives somewhere in Jerusalem and tell her you are my disciple? John, you were the last to leave the cross and you were there when the centurion lifted up his face towards heaven and said, surely this was the son of God. John, would you know his face again? Would you go down to the Roman barracks and find him? Tell him he was right. This is the Son of God. Tell him what that means. Because at the time, you didn't. You were planning your escape. James, you saw the Sanhedrin council demand of Pilate the sentence of death. James, would you go and arrange a meeting with the Sanhedrin council and tell them I'm alive? Matthew, 
you saw them offer Barabbas to the crowd or me to the crowd. Because remember, as a gesture of goodwill, as was customary on the Jewish festival of Passover, we'll let one of the criminals go three. There were four criminals, three crosses. Remember Jesus picked, uh, sorry, uh, Pontius Pilate picked the choice of Barabbas or Jesus and gave the choice to the crowd. Now he said, you can have Barabbas back in your streets. And they all knew Barabbas. He was a robber, he was a thief, he was a murderer. When Barabbas was in town, people locked their doors. When Barabbas was around, they kept their kids off the street. When Barabbas was around, they kept their women folks at home. It was dangerous. You can have this man back on the street. Or you can have Jesus back on the street. They knew Jesus. Jesus. When Jesus was around, nobody needed to lock their doors. You didn't keep your kids at home. You let them go and climb all over him. You didn't keep your women folk away because he gave women a dignity nobody else had ever done. Now it's said, Pontified, you can have Barabbas back on the streets by nine o'clock this morning. We can have Jesus back on the streets at nine o'clock this morning. Which of these two do you want? And Pontius Pilate, you read the story carefully, very evidently expected them to demand Jesus to be released. But they didn't. They said, give us Barabbas. And Pilate tried to act on Jesus' behalf. Well, what shall I do with this man? What has he done? And they began to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Matthew, Barabbas was a crook. And Matthew, you were in the underworld yourself. You were a tax collector. You were a thief. You were a robber. Matthew, do you think you know where Barabbas is hiding out? Would you go and find him? Did you tell him I died twice for him? He knows about the one time. Tell him about the fact I died for his sin. Thomas, you were there when people mocked and spat on me. Would you go and find them? Tell them who I really am. Andrew, those Roman soldiers played with the dice and divided up my clothing between them. Would you go and find those soldiers? You'll, you'll recognize them because they'll be wearing my clothes. And tell them when I cried from the cross, as they were callously dividing my garments between themselves at the foot of the cross, when I cried from the cross, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Would you go and tell them that I meant it? And I offer them forgiveness. You see, this was at Jerusalem. It'd be a lot easier to go to Antioch where nobody knew them, wouldn't it? But only he says, you go back to your Jerusalem because you see my power is made perfect in your weakness. And therefore, where people know your weakness, they're more likely to see my power. And it is my power that you're going to receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Be witnesses, first in Jerusalem. I don't know what your Jerusalem is. Maybe your home, maybe your place of work, it may be a place of failure. But if you engage with the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, in my weakness, I want you to be my strength. And by the way, never ask God to give you strength. Scripture never speaks in that language. It says God is our strength. The Lord is our strength. He doesn't give it to us. It is himself within us. That's their Jerusalem. And then into Judea, the province of which Jerusalem was the capital. 
This would involve making deliberate excursions out of your normal sphere, your normal workplace, your normal living place. Move out of that specifically to be involved in being a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the list, which I hope you all have, or if you don't, you'll get, you find a whole list of things where this church is involved in its Judea, Baptist Convention of New Mexico, Steel Bridge, Eagles Wings Youth Ranch, Gideon's International, Camp Inlow, Navigators, Prison Fellowship, etc. There are many more on that list. If you look down that list, are you involved in any of these at all? And maybe it isn't on the list, but are you involved in anything at all that is intentionally designed to take the gospel to people? Or are you just glad everybody else is doing that? You've been my witnesses in Jerusalem. Then outside your normal sphere, you're going to reach out to Judea. And then he said to Samaria, and Samaria was hostile territory. It tells us in the New Testament the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And that went back more than 700 years when Assyrians, who occupied the northern kingdom of Israel and left some Israelites behind to till the ground, they intermarried with them and produced children who were neither Syrian nor Israelites. And they called them Samaritans after the name of the city of Samaria, which is where the capital of Israel was at that time. They were children of a background that caused them to be rejected by both sides. Now says Jesus, you normally have no dealings with Samaritans. Go to Samaria, cross the cultural boundary that divides you, cross the racial boundary that divides you, cross the political boundary that divides you, cross the sectarian boundary that divides you. You see, a Christian has no right just to hang about with his own tribe, with the people who think like us and look like us, have the same views as us. We have no right to hang around only with people like that. That's what everybody does. But across those boundaries, cultural, racial, political, sectarian, whatever they are, And take the gospel then to the people of Samaria. They were very slow to do this, as we all are and they were. You ever compared Acts 1.8 with Acts 8.1? Uh, Acts 1.8, I just read, it says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, they received power and they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 3, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 7, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. There's some wheel spinning going on here, isn't there? I mean, who wants to leave Jerusalem? Weeks, months, possibly years have gone by and they're still in Jerusalem, still in phase one. Well, of course, it got very comfortable in Jerusalem, I'm sure. Who, who wants to leave Jerusalem? I mean, 
you go to the church in Jerusalem and Peter's preaching on Sunday morning, that's pretty good. John preaches on Sunday night. You know, James leads the youth ministry. Mary Magdalene is leading the Sunday school. Mary, the mother of Jesus, does the prayer meeting on a Thursday morning for the women. <laughs> Nicodemus leads the Bible study on a Wednesday night. Philip oversees the outreach of the church. I mean, you could not do better than that. You couldn't get, did you notice that miserable group of pastors that came up here just now to pray for Tom and Lynn? You're not taking this seriously, are you? (laughs) What I'm saying is this was was triple star pastoral team (laughs) in Jerusalem, wasn't it? Who wants to leave? Maybe it's comfortable for us too. One of the most comfortable things in the world is to define your Christianity by the fact you go to church on a Sunday morning. That is it. But please don't ask me to take anything more seriously. Please don't ask me to get actively involved in my community as a witness. And as many of you realize this weekend, there's a missions conference, but please don't expect me to go because most of you weren't here. Do you know why? Because you're not interested. Be honest about that yourself. Because we never get anywhere without authenticity. And you say, I am actually not interested. Well, why am I not interested? Let me start at that point. If you say, yeah, I'm interested, I pray for you. You know, I meet people all the time and say, we pray for them. They never do. It's, it's language, it's, it's jargon that we've learned. And in Jerusalem, they were spinning their wheels. They were happy to be there. Nothing happened outside of Jerusalem. And then what did happen was that one of their best men was stoned to death. His name was Stephen. Stephen was one of the deacons of the church in Jerusalem, became a powerful preacher We know that from the last sermon he ever preached, which was the whole of Acts chapter 7. And at the end of it, the people responded because he was very straight and direct at the end and said, you stiff-necked people, just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's why you have to be honest if you're going to get anywhere with people. And uh, he, he... said this, they became angry. It says, uh, where is it? They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. And it says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. So now things are getting really serious and really dangerous. Stephen is stoned to death. And you know what the next sentence says? On that day, A great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That's Acts 8.1. Have you noticed that? Acts 1.8 is the commission. Seven chapters. They have a good time in Jerusalem, but they don't go anywhere. The end of the seventh chapter, Stephen is martyred to death and with his body and the blood of his body on the streets of Jerusalem, persecution arose, the people got a taste for blood and they scattered to Judea and they scattered to Samaria, the very places they've been told to go. And sometimes 
It's not outright persecution like this that drives us, but it is when God brings into our lives hardships and pain and suffering that we suddenly wake up to what we're really about. And it's God's agents and God's means of driving us to obedience. And then finally, he says, to the ends of the earth. That doesn't mean that the more obedient you are, the further you will travel. <laughs> but it's just speaking of the corporate responsibility of the church, that as you are witnesses in Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, the corporate impact will spread out to the ends of the earth. And that's why the local, the Jerusalem, and the ends of the earth not to be separated up. We're involved in all of it. Somebody once defined evangelism as the whole church taking the whole gospel into the whole world. The whole church, not the specialists. We've made a great mistake sometimes, I think, in dividing their certain professional Christians. We expect things of them, but there's the rest of us. We call ourselves lay people. We don't expect anything of them. That's the mentality very often. And it's not a New Testament distinction. I've been a pastor in Toronto for 17 years. I came from England, and it's a church that uh, God has blessed with history. Church where we're very privileged to see many folks come to Christ. But when I came there, I refused uh, any formal ordination or to be given the title reverend. One, because I don't find the New Testament. That's a human-made thing. But the other, because it immediately divides. And I said, I come to this church as one of the congregation. That's my primary function in this church. And out of that, I'm involved in leadership. I'm involved in teaching, involved in preaching, and we broadcast and so on. I'm involved in, in all of that. But do not give me a title that sets me apart from the young teenage boy on the back row. If he's in Christ and I'm in Christ, we have different functions, of course, but we're one body. It's not an elite part of that body. We're one body. And this commission is for the whole church to take the whole gospel into the whole world and they were slow getting going, and persecution was the pattern that drove them. And in fact, by the way, we sometimes say, let's get back to the book of Acts. You know, we, we look at it through rose-tinted glasses. 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and 22 of the 28 chapters, people are being persecuted. When you get back to the book of Acts, what you're saying is, let's get back into a, an environment where people are antagonistic towards Christ. Let's get back to an environment where it's not popular to be a Christian. Let's get back to an environment where Christians are sidelined. Let's get back. That's what we're saying when we say, let's get back to the book of Acts. Because that was the story of the book of Acts. And God in his grace is allowing the Western world to slide back into this. So we might be different and be his agents in the world because the baton which the Lord Jesus gave to them and they passed to the next generation and to the next and to the next and for 2,000 years. That baton has arrived in our hands. And the truth is still true. You receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has his way in your life. And you'll be witnesses. It'll be your life. It won't be something you do. It'll be who you are. And you'll be involved locally in your Jerusalem where people know you. You'll be involved in your Judea. You'll be involved in your Samaria. You'll be involved to the ends of the earth. And I ask you as I finish, do you know very much about his power? Being made perfect in your weakness? You know very much about his purpose. Your life is wholly given over to him to be a signpost to Christ. Do you know anything of his procedure? Are you following it? Are you consciously, intentionally thinking and asking and praying, what is my Judea? Not the theory of it. What is mine? Maybe on this list something. Where do I get involved? Or that's between you and God. What is the Samaria that is going to occupy my heart? What is the ends of the earth that's going to become part of my prayer life and that's going to touch my bank account? What is it? Because that's the Christian life. Anything less is just playing a game. An evangelical game, of course. A Baptist game. A Christian game. But that's all it is. And not as vehicles for the Lord Jesus Christ to extend his grace and his life into the world. It's grace through us has been the title. Christ through us. Where? doing a U-turn, coming back to me, grace through me to make my life better, to make me more comfortable, to make me satisfied, and we U-turn the grace of God, and we U-turn the work of Christ. Grace through us, Christ through us, what? To touch the world. And we praise God for the faithful people of the centuries who enable us to be here today because of their faithfulness. And there'll be those in days and years to come who will thank God for the faithfulness of you, this church, this community because the way in which the life of the Lord Jesus will be extended through us to other people. Does that make sense? Let's pray together. Let's ask God to write this into our hearts and into our experience. Lord Jesus Christ, we Thank you so much this morning that you are here. You're not an onlooker looking at us through a telescope. You're present, not just here in the community of believers, though that is true also. We've been built together to become a dwelling place of the Spirit, but you live within us personally. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will give you free reign to be yourself in us and do your work through us to mold our lives into your character and to us bring your message of truth to men and women, boys and girls who so desperately need to know it and to meet with you. Make this real for us, we pray, for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.